Peace, y'all. This is the second of two bonus episodes recorded live at the Queens Public Library on December 15th, 2022. In the first part of the event, Max and I interviewed New York City Schools Chancellor David C. Banks. In the second part, we took questions from Chalkbeat reporter Rima Amin, then from the audience. This episode is going to reference our conversation with the Chancellor a few times, so if you haven't heard that yet, take a pause here, go back, and listen now. All right, let's get into it. Here's Rima. So I wanted to sort of ground the conversation just by, if you could talk, you know, briefly about why you chose Queens District 28, and you address this in the podcast, but for folks who don't remember or may have missed it, um, tell us how you got there. Well, I do think actually what we were talking about with the chancellor is is a, is a big part of it because um, we this conversation about integration and diversity, which is kind of how we ended season one, it, it is uh, in many ways sort of imagined as a conversation about black and white. And that's in many ways the way it played out in the first season of the podcast, which is based in Bed-Stuy in central Brooklyn, where Mark and I both live and work. Um, and so when we heard about what was going on in District 28 in Queens, we just thought it was a really great opportunity to... Um, to go beyond that because the chancellor is right. The city doesn't look like just black and white by any means. Um, and it doesn't mean that these questions and these issues aren't, don't, aren't relevant to everybody in the city. Um, it just means that we have to reimagine what they mean. And so that was a big conversation that we were excited and a little scared, but mostly excited to have. Yeah, and I would say that, as Max said, that was the reason why we wanted to do District 28, but we actually were looking at diversity planning that was going on across the city. And our original somewhat misguided idea was that we were going to sort of look at um, several different diversity planning processes that were going on across the, the, the city. But we realized for pra- practicality's sake, we can't do that. Um, you know, the, the, the podcast would have been about 40 episodes long, it just wouldn't have made sense. Well, also, we wrote that application in January 2020. Right. And by the time we uh, got the, we were awarded the fellowship that allowed us to start reporting, it was April 2020. And so we were going to, we were like, oh, we're going to bounce around between Staten Island right. and Bronx and Queens. Exactly. Um, to follow all these different diversity planning processes, which ended up weren't, were not happening anyway. And yeah. it just, yeah, we had to pick one. And, and the fact that you had all this pushback against it gave us the opportunity not to just like sort of focus on drama, but to, I, I think it's through conflict that you get to understand, you know, who people are and who we are. And we, so we saw that as an opportunity to not only go beyond the sort of black-white binary, but to actually dig down into identity itself, right? Because there are a lot of terms we use very loosely, black, white, Asian, Latinx, and those terms themselves are inadequate. And we wanted, to, we wanted to use this as an opportunity to interrogate that a little bit more um, and to have that be a gateway into a conversation about not only education, but like what does a functioning multiracial democracy actually look like? So, you, I mean, you guys touched on this a little bit with the chancellor, and I mean, he did too, that these the community from season one is certainly not the same as, as this district in Queens. Um, and you both have personal ties, not just to season one, but, you know, this, the, also this community here um, in District 28. So can you talk a little bit about, 
you know, maybe what surprised you or what felt different about the reporting process of season two compared to season one, compared to like what your expectations were going in? Let me say this. Uh, that was one of the reasons why District 28 was compelling to us as well, because one of the things that I think really distinguishes the first season is that we both tell our own personal stories. Our histories are really wrapped up in the story that we're telling. And we were a little bit concerned about doing this season because we didn't have the same kind of relationship to the district. And yet, both Max and I do have a connection to, to Queens and to the district. Again, I, I used to live in Southeast Queens. I went to school um, in, in District 29. Um, and so I think for me, the, the biggest surprise is just to know that Southeast Queens, parts of Southeast Queens were, were part of the same district as far as Tills. That in and of itself was not only striking, but it just gave us so much, again, so much opportunity to dig in and ask not only why, but okay, now that these people are together, what the hell is, is happening there? So that was one big surprise. What were you thinking, Max? Yeah, I mean, similarly, there is a way in which Forest Hills is like an emblem of a, of a kind of a neighborhood for American Jews in this country. Like while we were reporting this season, I was at my grandma's house and I found a marriage, uh, a marriage, a wedding invitation for some cousin who I've never met in at the Forest Hills Jewish Center in like 1956. I mean, it, 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 uh, there's just it's there's a trajectory for uh, families like mine that goes from like poverty in uh, Brownsville in the case of my family like poverty in Brownsville to middle class life in Forest Hills to uh, upper middle class let's hope in the suburbs somewhere and so I it, talking about Forest Hills in particular in episode three did feel personal for me even though it my family was not directly involved in that story in the same way that Ocean Hill Brownsville uh, and the teacher strike in season one was very directly, uh, very much more personal for both of us. Right. And in tackling District 28, I was able to step out of Southeast Queens. I mean, look, we know that, that New York is a city of neighborhoods, but Queens, when you talk about enclaves, it I don't think there's any place, there are a few places that rival it in terms of... I don't know what the, just the, the level in which, it, the, the level at which community works and how you can be, you can live in that neighborhood and not know what the hell is going on out, out, outside of you. And although I took the E and the F trains, I took the, 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 the Q5 bus, I went through neighborhoods and, and grew up not knowing a damn thing about them, right? And for me, it was an opportunity to learn, I mean, Richmond Hill, for instance, and, and when you talk about Guyanese identity, my grandfather was, was, was Guyanese, and the history that I learned through this process was something I had never heard before. So that, that was a surprise, and it, it, we, we work from, as every journalist does, I think from a sense of curiosity and, and wonderment, and that, that's how we stepped into this. So speaking of season one, the idea of community control of schools is, is huge, and then in season two, parent power and parent involvement is sort of the foundation of the, the pushback and the support and, and the whole debate that you cover about the diversity planning process. So talk to me a little bit about maybe how, if at all, your ideas about parent power, parent engagement perhaps changed between season one and season two. 
I think this is the like the biggest way in which the I, one of the biggest ways in which I think the two seasons are in conversation with each other um, is that in season one, yeah, season one, parent power and 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 self determination um, for school communities is is really a running theme, and 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 we're very enthusiastic about it. I guess you could say. And then in season two, from the beginning, it's like parents. The story that we're telling is that parents come in to stop something, which wouldn't have necessarily been good, but seemed like it might have some possibility. And so, what do you what do what do you do with that? Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I will say that I think that was behind the questions that we were uh, going to the chancellor with. That is, this idea of listening to the community. I mean, first of all, that is, that's such an amorphous idea, community. And I'm a community organizer, right? I preach self community self-determination all the time. And what I was confronted with in District 28 in that conversation is realizing that a lot of people can be self-determining. A lot of people can get out there and be very effective at, at organizing. That doesn't make what you do righteous. And so how do you balance that out, right? How do you take voices that, again, are loud, that are effective at organizing, that have resources that others don't have, um, and that is a form of self-determination. Um, and yet, what do you do with that if you feel like that self-determination is hurting other people and is detrimental to the health and well-being of other people around them? Like, I, I don't think either of us is out, out here to be like, you know, parents should be less empowered. Right. You know, like, right. that's, not, exactly. that's not what we're here to do or say to anybody. Um, but it, I mean, it, I guess this is just, this is just democracy. It's, right, right, it's democracy. You know, right. Uh, and a democracy... And democracy is hard. And democracy, democracy is hard in a place with really, really deep inequality, you know, over the course of generations. So, you know, in that same vein, you both do an extraordinary job of explaining the historic and systemic barriers to public housing and schooling and these policies that really worked to divide this community by race and class. Given that history, what did you learn from, what did you learn about how a community with deep-rooted systemic problems like that can have, what is the best way to have a conversation about integration? What is the best way to build consensus um, and to, I, I don't know if this is the right word, but to start to overcome some of those deep-rooted problems, historic issues? I'm going to dodge that question just a little bit <laughs> um, and say I would say one thing that's very clear from this season of the show is that the most effective way to get people to come out and start talking and organizing and advocating around anything is to make them feel threatened. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and again, just like Mark was saying about... Um, you know that 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 can go in any direction. I mean, it, that that's not that's. I'm not saying that's good or bad. This morning, I have been told that there was a big action in South Jamaica where people, where hundreds, I think, of students marched from uh, Springfield Gardens to the 72 IS 72 building because the city is talking about co-locating a success academy in that building where there are already three schools. They feel threatened by that. They came out. That's amazing. Um, 
it's that's really it's really effective. <laughs> um, now, how do you get people to 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 start to have not just a conversation about integration, but like an, a really like expansive and imaginative, generative? Like, it doesn't have to be the same thing that we all think integration means Productive, from things that happened fifty maybe. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how do you how do we get out of that paradigm and start to be? Uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I would I will say that. I think what we've learned is I think you have to start with, you know, as the chancellor was pointing to a certain extent, you have to be clear on what your goal is, right? Because I think that when black people, as he said, say they're not that interested in integration, I think it's because of how you frame the question in the first place. I think if the question is framed as how do we get a quality education? How do we ensure that every, for instance, black child in South Jamaica gets a quality education? I think you, ex you open up the, the, the conversation and I think diversity integration probably will factor in that somehow, right? Because if you talk about what it means to be a global citizen um, and what it's going to take for everyone to have access to the same kind of quality education, I don't think there are not many roads that don't lead through integration in some form or a fashion. And so if that's where you begin, then you just have to be brave enough to be part of in the, the conversation going all the way through. And integration is not the end goal. It is the means towards something. It's more means towards a, a, a many different things. And so as long as you always, people, it's posed as like that we're trying to, you know, hold hands and live in a racial utopia, and that I have to be—I have to be sitting next to a white body in order to get a good education. People are going to say, "Hell no, I don't want that." Um, so yeah, I just think we have to start with a, a different place in the conversation. Right. We probably learned more about what doesn't work than what does. Um, but I can't swear this for a fact. But I, I have a theory that the reason that these that diversity planning. Um, as it was starting to happen three years ago, was was called that. The reason they used the word diversity is because they didn't want to use the, the word integration, um, uh, because integration sounded scary. Integration sounded like what you were talking about. Integration sounded like Boston and all these other places where there have been huge backlashes. Um, and so diversity sounded nicer. Um, I, I actually, having talked to the people who are behind it, what they really wanted to talk about was inequality. Right. And if they had said, like, I, what would have happened if they had said, we're going to have an inequality planning process? <laughs> well, I have me, no people, idea. I people no would have been against that, too. Yeah, right? I don't know. Would that have been any better? I don't know. I don't, yeah, you I don't know. know. Um, I don't know. But the, it's, I think what, people, what some people wanted was to say, you know, yeah, well, the schools are segregated and unequal. That's really too bad. I'm happy to talk about it, but take that off the table. Yeah. Take diversity and integration off the table. I'm happy to talk about how we can make the schools better, but we can't do that. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is not really fair. Yeah, the, the problem is we've gotten to this place in this country now where I think we got to come talking about diversity because it was less politically loaded than, than other terms. And yeah, yet it doesn't really matter. Like, at, 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 at the point you mention race and inequality in any kind of conversation, people are reacting to it. And, and, and people are reacting to it with not only a political agenda of their own, but what they're perceiving is a political agenda from you. And so, you know, I don't have to tell anyone how, you know, the, where we are in this country right now in terms of our inability to have the most basic conversations about inequality. 
And I mean, does that also include the words integration and segregation, a word we know Very much so. I mean, those are the yeah. most loaded of, of them all, and they've got so much history and baggage behind them that they're almost radioactive at this point. I will say, like, I also think nobody likes to be told that they're, nobody likes to be told th or likes to feel like they're being told that they're stupid. Um, and nobody likes to be made to feel like, I, like I, I, I understand you better than you understand yourself, yeah. you know? Um, and there, that, that can happen. And that's not helpful. <laughs> so I have, a, I have like a million other questions I want to ask you guys, especially like behind the scenes stuff, but we definitely want to get to audience questions. So we're going to open up both of the mics. There's one on the left. Oh, there go my notes. The left and right side. Um, so if you so before we jump into the audience Q&A, remember, this was a hometown audience. So we're going to get pretty deep into the weeds of Southeast Queens geography. If you're not familiar, try to keep this map in your head. Southeast Queens is a historically black area that is split between three school districts. District 27, District 28, and District 29. Districts 27 and 28 each have the kind of north-south racial divide that we talked about in School Color Season 2. But District 29, where I grew up and went to school, is almost entirely black. Hello, my name is Donisa Bacharasini. Um, I live in District 28 on the north side, but I too grew up in District 29 in the St. Albans Hollis area, so this is my library. Had my first kiss in high school here. <laughs> um, so my daughter goes to school in Forest Hills. I live in Briarwood, which is, you know, is kind of close to the Mason-Dixon line that you guys were describing of Hillside. So I feel very fortunate that I was able to bypass the kind of open secret that we are part of the Forest Hills district because the longstanding people who live in our building assumed that we could only go to school in Briarwood or South. And it was only through research that is publicly available knowledge, but actually just doesn't seem to be very well known that I realized, oh, she can go to school in Forest Hills. And so we were able to get into PS 144 and she's having an amazing time. And the thing I noticed there is I think the power of the parents to fundraise makes all the difference. So the fact that these parents um, are parents of means, um, they're able to pump money into all these events and fundraising, you know, things like that. And then that actually funds the enrichment programs that the whole school takes part in. Every grade has enrichment. It, it's incredible, the wealth of resources we have there, but it's not coming from the district's money. It's coming from all the fundraising from the wealthy-ish, you know, parents. So I got my head together with somebody recently and I thought, what if there's a proto-solution that has to do more with like what we can do as people who are not aligned with the district or not specifically working for the DOE? Like, for example, if you get somebody who specializes in supply chain and logistics, let's say, and they create some sort of database where you could manage all the stuff that our school throws out throws out that looks brand new, but they're able to upgrade because of the extra money that they're bringing in from the families. What if instead of going into the trash that went into a central repository and then other schools in the district would have like a way of being able to get to those resources fair and square, you know, based on some sort of requisition or something. Like, I just wonder if there's more that can be done that's outside of the DOE. And I don't know who would organize that, who would 
make sure that any contracts or requisitions are, are divvied up fairly. I have no idea, but it was just something I wanted to bring up in case anybody here has that power <laughs> or influence. I do not. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, um, my name is Sam. Uh, I've lived in New York since 2004 when I came here to teach and still work for the DOE. Um, I've been in, involved in integration advocacy since 2016 and just continually learning and seeing how layered the issue is and how historically complex and huge fan, as you guys know, of your podcast because um, it's helped me understand it so much better. Um, I'd love for you to parse the Chancellor's comments a little bit more because he hasn't spoken on integration. <laughs> and so just what your reactions were to what he said. And there were two things that stuck out to me. Um, there was a lot that stuck out to me, but two things I wanted to raise. One was I thought it was interesting that he talked about how, you know, in the old model of integration, you have um, kids leaving their communities and leaving the rest of the, the, the black community behind, right? And where does that leave them? And I thought the irony there was that he recently was criticized for his comments on gifted and talented, right? And, and that if you, you know, have earned your right into a, mm -hmm. a more competitive school. And, 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 and so I just felt like there was a parallel there that I, I would have loved to have heard it from him again about, or more about. And then um, I also, Max, I love that you brought up the five bars of integration. And it was, it was a point where I was like, oh, that was brilliant because we're not talking about the same thing. Like you're talking about the five R's and he's talking about the old model. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the classic examples of we're not talking about, we don't have the same vocabulary. But I, but I know he's familiar with the vocabulary, right? Like, and so um, I'm curious, I, I'm, I, I just would love to know what he would say about the five R's because I think the five R's, for those who don't know, like Integrate NYC came up with this and you guys can explain it better than I can, but um, a more complex definition of integration that has to do with resources, um, race and enrollment, uh, restorative justice, help me out, uh, relationships, right? And representation in the teaching staff. Um, and so it's such a good model because it is a place where a lot of people can find common ground. Um, I'm curious, you know, if, if that's a if that's still potentially a starting place or, or if even that ship is kind of sailed because we're not hearing about it right now. So a lot out there, but at the end of the day, I'd love to hear your thoughts just on what you heard from him and, and where, you, where the conversation went. Well, I, I can't speak to whether that ship has sailed. I don't really know. But um, I, I am struck by, I don't know everybody that the chancellor has spoken to, but I, I am struck by that the people who I hear frequently saying like, oh, it's an old model, it's outdated. They're the ones who are, who are propagating it, actually. I'm not saying that nobody still believes that integration just means black and white and then butts and seats. I, I'm sure there are many people who still understand it that way. The, the, the advocates that we have spoken to don't talk about it that way. So I don't know who he's talking about, which means that he's the one who is out here continuing to propagate the idea that this is what integration means. It means black and white and just moving bodies around for its own sake. Um, that's my response to that. Yeah, I, I would say that, and I don't want to talk smack about him. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I'm, not, I'm not talking. I, no, yeah, no, I know you're I, not. No, I'm, I'm responding there. I hope I, I'm not. No, 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 not at all. He has a hard um, job. I'm just, I'm saying that, putting that out there before I say anything else. Uh, I, I, I think the, 
the, the most generous interpretation I have for what he said in, in, in directly to inter integration is that I know the chancellor. And when I say I know him, I think this is the first time we've met. But I know the chancellor. I know his political sensibility. I know the neighborhoods he's grown up in. Um, I have a sense of his analysis of, of, of the world. And where I think a lot of it is coming from, I don't, I don't think that he or any black person at the end of the day is like, no, I don't ever want to in, be integrated with any other people. I don't, I don't think that's where we're coming from. I think what you heard is a fatigue that is generations long of having this conversation. Yes. Um, and integration being lifted as the answer and the solution and having to, what it feels like sort of beg white people to, you know, to sit next to them. And I think that's what you're hearing. That fatigue is like, I'm not, I, 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 I'm down with it, but I'm not the dude who's going to lead that charge. That's, I'm just not here for that. So when he talks about priorities, I think he's like, look, I think that that's good, but that's not where I'm coming from. And if you need a champion for that, you're going to have to get someone else. That's how I interpret that. Uh, just before we get, we have like 10-ish minutes left. And I'm, I'm, I love that people are asking detailed questions, but if we could keep it pretty concise so these guys can get to everyone. Thank you. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. For, for our audio, for our <laughs> podcast listening audience, we have been handed uh, laminated cards yes, um, with the proficiency rates in District 29. Exactly. So my name is Austin Bryan, and great reporting. Uh, as I was listening to the, the, the series, I saw it as a, a critique on the underperformance of the schools in the black community. Uh, not so much the integration piece, but why do those schools underperform? I live on 223rd Street. I grew up right down the block from Brother Banks. 227th Street? 223rd. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's where you're from. Yeah. So Between we, where and where? <laughs> no, because I lived on 227th, okay. so that's why I'm asking. 114th and Linden. He's okay. closer to All Linden. Right. I'm closer to 114th. But the point is, and I also had to go out of district. Uh, my, my parents sent me out of tw tw to 26. I went to school in Bayside. And so he had to go out of the district. I had to go out of the district, and it's not a, an impoverished community, but the schools underperform. In that entire district, whether, uh, whether you're in school uh, board 28, 29, or 27, they all underperform. And what, is, what, what drives that? That's why I was hoping that maybe in future episodes that, that you would tackle that issue. And again, we're not talking about an underserved, underperformed community. Everyone's here, civil service workers, entrepreneurs, but we still just can't get those same schools to function as soon as you cross Hillside. So thank you for your work. Tremendous job. Thank you. Thank I'm, looking for, I'm looking forward to season three. Yeah. Thank you. I, I will say this is that, well, that was one of the surprises when we were doing the reporting that I heard how, in fact, I think it was you, Venus, who told me that does, does, is, is District 29 the lowest performing district in, in, in the Queens? Yeah, that, that I, so I went to school in District 29. I went to um, PS, um, 132 Ralph Bunch School and IS 59. Okay, 59. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked, I looked at, I mean, we're talking about underperforming, so I was, I was surprised because when I looked at my graduation uh, program, 50, now this is, a, it was all black school back yes. then, 50 kids, 50 kids were on their way to Brooklyn Tech from that one school, yeah. Yeah, yeah. all right? You had about maybe 10 kids were going to Stuyvesant, maybe five 
from um, to Bronx Science. This is one school. Yeah. That's more than like what you see throughout the entire city now. Um, and so it, it's, it speaks to what I think is possible within the district. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. Hello. Hello. My name is Joali Burgos, and um, I, I have a personal connection to District 28. I'm from East New York on the Brownsville, East New York border, and I went to school in District 28. I went to Thomas Edison High School like nine minutes away. Um, currently, I'm a Queens College student in the Urban Studies Department, and this semester, I took a class called Urban Education and the Roots of the Urban Crisis. And we used so many of your podcast episodes in our class. It was like the most best discussions that we've had in, our, in our, the whole semester. And one thing that you know, was on my mind a lot was that we focused so much on what the parents have to say and what the educators have to say and the politicians. And we lose a lot of youth voices. And we particularly lose a lot of the people who just left the education system or are still currently in it. We have so much to say, and um, you know, I think that when we talk about protest movements and we talk about the resistance to um, integration or the support for it, um, our youth have really taken the lead in a lot of the cases, and they're not really like at the forefront of that. I think someone had earlier mentioned Integrate NYC, which was a co-movement between students and teachers in, in their district in Brooklyn. And, also, when we talk about like teens take charge, or um, you know, even the Hunter High School kids who organized a protest in the middle of the pandemic to talk about admissions policies at their school and the the inequality there, right? And that was led by their Hispanic student body president. Um, so, you know, like, what are the podcast plans? Maybe this is like a snippet for season three, but are you guys going to include more youth voices? Like, I would love to hear, like, what our kids have to say, what college age people have to say who just left the system and um, kind of highlighting more youth voices. And, you know, parents are so important, but so are we. <laughs> loud and clear. Are you loud and clear? Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's anything else to say, but we, I do think you raise a really good point. And uh, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to speak to whether it's going to be a season three or not. I'm not going to speak to that. <laughs> but um, whatever happens, I think we're going to take, take that more into account. And I, I do, I love, I mean, you and also like, uh, like everybody who has spoken has brought up like all of the things that really we want, always wanted to do and want to do more of. I don't, again, I don't know if there'll be a season three, but every time we've done this, it's like, oh, I, don't, I wish we had more youth voices. Mm -hmm. uh, this season in particular, like, I wanted to talk to, we wanted to talk to and feature the voices of more Latinx, Spanish-speaking parents. Like, I want to talk more about teaching and learning and curriculum. Like, you know, um, there's always so much stuff that we just don't have time for. Yeah. Um, and I always just have to console myself and say, well, there are other podcasts that do those things. <laughs> so shout out to uh, the front row of the audience who are all with the Miseducation podcast and PS Weekly, mm -hmm. which is a podcast run by young people um and i'm so glad that you guys got something out of the out of the yeah, podcast in your class that makes my heart yeah. so happy oh it was very heated in that class All so right. it was great. i love that i love of, that that's what we're here for yeah <laughs> thank you we have run way past time so i just want to thank everyone for coming out i want to thank the city and the Queens Library, Queens Public Library again, um, as well as my editors, Amy and Carrie and everyone that helped us prepare for this event. And most of all, to, Mar uh, to Mark and Max for, for having this conversation today. Thank you guys so yeah, much. Yeah, and, and can I just say that I know it's, it's trite, people say it all the time, but really, this like, 
us talking to ourselves doesn't do anything. The fact that you're listening and you like took the time to come out on a rainy day and be here and participate in this, this it means so much to us. So, so thank you. Yeah, yeah, truly. Thank you. Thank you to Rima and everyone from Chalkbeat New York, the city, and the Queens Public Library for making this event happen. And special thanks to Morgan McGuire and Obi Levine, our last-minute engineers. Want to keep this conversation going? We'd love to hear from you. Write to us at contact at brooklyndeep.org or leave us a voicemail at 929-483-6387. Peace.